You're listening to an episode of Law Review Squared, the Law Review Review. It is 8 p.m. on Thursday, April 1st. I'm joined today by our panel, Shenley, Seth, and Joanne, who will ask to answer the question. You've been offered a slot on the first trip to Mars. It's leaving next year. The only catch is it's a one-way ticket. Do you go? Let's start with Seth. Oh, next year? I don't know. Um, yeah, I would do it. Joanne? I would not. We don't need to ruin another planet. Shenley? Hard no for me. I got to finish law school. That's a good point. Um, I, I need to finish law school also, but it would be neat to be the first lawyer on Mars. You wouldn't have, what would it, you wouldn't have an ABA, right? It would be like the MBA or something, and you could be the president of it. And it'd be great. President, judge, chief of the Supreme Court. <laughs> While supplies last, you can still get a free Law Review Squared sticker by sending your mailing address to lexclava at gmail.com. That's L-E-X-C-L-A-V-A at gmail.com. We'll ship anywhere, even if you're overseas. A reminder that the opinions here are those of the panelists and do not represent the view of Penn State Dickinson Law, the panelists' present, former, or future employers, or any other entity. Contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. And now I'm going to turn the episode over to Shanley. Thank you, Tony. Good evening, everyone. Uh, so the article <clears throat> that I chose for this week is COVID-19 and the Constitution, how the Bill of Rights is being tested by the coronavirus. And this is from the New York Law Journal. Um, and basically, it just goes through um, the um, trajectory of the coronavirus last year and um, how it possibly violated certain amendments. Um, and so I was interested in this article in particular um, because I think, you know, we're coming up on one year after the whole shutdown and uh, things like that. So um, last year when the pandemic shutdowns first happened, um, I would see a lot of business owners on TV who said that the government engaged in um, an illegal in an illegal regulatory taking of their businesses by making them shut down. And uh, my husband, who was a lawyer, um, he and I would talk about it. And he didn't think that it was a taking since the state was exercising its police powers um, in the name of public health and safety. Um, and a lot of this didn't make sense to me at the time, but he told me once I would start law school, it would start to make sense. So in our section, um, we in a property, we recently started talking about eminent domain and takings um, are adjacent to the eminent domain process. So, um, you know, with us one year out of the strictest part of shutdowns and states now fully reopening, I thought this might be a good topic to discuss. Um, so I guess the first question that we'll start with, and uh, we can start with Seth. So uh, pre-law school, when we were living a fun, carefree life, uh, probably being super social, seeing our friends and having a great time, uh, can you tell us about how the shutdowns last April impacted your life directly? Um, I had been working as an independent contractor doing some different writing and research for a few different organizations when um, when kind of COVID hit, uh, this was a little bit before the shutdown, um, but the work started to dry up and I started looking for other jobs, but kind of everybody was uh, facing the same issue. And um, unfortunately, Pennsylvania didn't allow independent contractors to get unemployment in the first roll out of uh, the PUA. So I was pretty much stuck. And from about February to June, um, I, I lived on like a credit card. I, I lost like 20 pounds over that time. And uh, it was rough, but but then kind of factoring in the other things in my life and stuff like that, um, it, it wasn't much of a fun time. But I did end up getting on the unemployment in June, 
and I paid off the credit card debt and um, it's all good now. So, um, but in that moment, it was, it was rough. So were you planning to go to law school before that, or did that kind of make you want to go to law school? No, I, I had applied actually um, before this past time that I applied to come to Dickinson and I, I decided to put it off for another year. Um, and so I was just kind of doing some work, just trying to build up a resume a little bit better. And, um, and around that time is when I made the decision actually to come to Dickinson. Uh, so. Okay. How about you, Joanne? What type of fun things were you doing with your friends pre pandemic? Um, so I only had one friend and we spent 90% of our time at target. Um, so that's all we did. So when COVID started, there wasn't. Well, they had already graduated high school, so it's not like I would see them at school anyways. Um, so I was a junior in high school when it started, which, in my opinion, the hardest year of high school, the most uh, important GPA-wise. Um, so it just kind of uprooted my high school, really. And then, of course, it's dragged into this year which is really difficult ending out my uh, high school career at, like half and half, like in person and on Zoom. And then it's all just up in the air still. Yeah, that's got to be a really sad time to be graduating high school. So I, I feel you on that one. Um, what about you, Tony? I, I guess, I mean, when the shutdown started to happen, I was in a stable job. I had already decided I was coming to law school. Um, we visited Dickinson at an open house in February before um, the restrictions started happening. And, um, and, and, and so we had decided on Dickinson. The shutdown itself didn't necessarily like immediately stop me from doing work or anything like that. Um, there was uh, some uncertainty whether as a state government employee, we were going to get shifted around to pandemic response, um, you know, from, from the duties that we were doing. And I think that a lot of the attempts to provide a safe working environment initially were kind of based in um, not not necessarily based in science, although that was because there wasn't much available on COVID. We didn't know if it was airborne originally. We didn't know if it was, um, you know, you could get it again um, and, and so on. So, um, but fortunately, because I was a, a state government employee at the time, I mean, my, my position was stable. It wasn't going to go away. Um, it was frustrating switching over to remote work uh, but that's just kind of part of life. <laughs> I was working, um, and my job has always been remote. Uh, so it really wasn't an impact to me at all. But the, the biggest thing was, uh, my husband has started working remotely from home. So that was kind of an adjustment, like us both trying to work at home. Um, but we made the most of it. Okay. Uh, so, um, I'm originally from the area near Carlisle. Um, so, it wasn't that I had to move or anything come into um, 
law school. And uh, the article talks about four business owners, owners here in Pennsylvania who brought a Fifth Amendment challenge to vacate the state's stay-at-home orders against Governor Wolf. Um, the Pennsylvania's Governor Wolf, uh, he took a pretty bold, hard line with his response to coronavirus. Um, and so I'm not exactly sure where everyone's from, but I wanted to see how your state kind of handled the first few months of the pandemic. Uh, and we'll start with Tony. Sure. So we were up in uh, Minnesota at the time. Um, I will say that I, you know, we did a, a fair amount of driving by necessity, um, say three or four months into the pandemic. And Minnesota's response under Governor Walls was certainly better than Wisconsin's. Um, people did wear masks. Um, they... Um, you know, businesses did shut, people did go to remote work. Um, it became very political in Minnesota. Um, and then we, then we moved in the summer, you know, to Pennsylvania. Um, so I think Joe might be able to speak more to, to how the response was. I will say not so much from the state government perspective, but the school district took heroic measures to try and get food to children. We didn't necessarily need food assistance um, ourselves, but they took the position that it was more important to get food out to the school-aged children than it was who were possibly dependent on um, receiving lunch and breakfast at at school than it was to be means testing to make sure that people who you know could afford to continue buying groceries were not receiving that food. Um, and I appreciated that. Joanne, did you want to add anything? Well, I will say that that was a very, very big deal, the food um, thing. So our school district, um, once a week, they would, you know, they'd ask how many students or whatever in the household and then they'd send a full week of lunch and breakfast in a box just so like students could have that as means of food if they if like their parents lost a job or whatever. And also we we shut down pretty quick. Um, my teachers were on strike uh, right before the uh, pandemic happened. Um, and so we were about to go back into school and then the governor immediately said, yeah, we, we have to shut down right now. And so we didn't get to go back to school and, you know, it took a while to get back online and everything. But I think we handled it pretty well with like shutting down restaurants and everything. There was like nothing open, like there were drive throughs and stuff because you know, those were still kind of mandatory, you know, people still needed those sometimes. Um, and like the grocery stores were open, but there was no shopping. All the malls were closed really quickly, really, really quickly, which was fantastic. Seth? I'm from Pennsylvania, so I probably have about the same insight as you. I, uh, I don't envy any of the governors, though. I must have been crazy in those Capitol buildings at that time. I used to work uh, in the governor's office and uh, I used to work on the phones and that was a very miserable job. And I was so thankful that I didn't have that job right now though, because I can only imagine the type of people who were calling and upset with Governor Wolf. Um, 
so um, as we're learning in con law and property, if the government does exercise its police power and engage in a taking of a property or business, the owner must be compensated. So do you think the government did try to offer some type of compensation to business owners uh, with the payroll protection program and other monies that were available? Uh, we'll start with Joanne. What are your thoughts? Um, to be honest, I'm, I don't have much to say about this just because I didn't work or anything. I didn't look in a lot into like businesses or anything, just because, you know, I'm still young. I don't really need a job or anything. And so COVID didn't really affect me in that sense. Um, but I know there were a lot of, uh, there were a lot of businesses that did get shut down and, you know, small businesses that they're closed for too long if they're still renting that property or whatever they have to um shut down because they can't afford it anymore which was really sad so i feel like maybe they got a little bit of compensation for that but maybe not enough i don't think i don't think small business owners were really put into the light enough okay yeah thank you uh what about you tony well, I don't know um, that payroll protection program um, really was compensation. You know, it's a forgivable loan that was offered. The initial rollout was badly administered, um, where mid-sized companies that had strong banking relationships with the distributing banks um were much more likely to receive money than the conventional small business on on main street that was supposedly the target of the program um and it probably did not provide sufficient supports that said uh i do think that you know there's a difference between a police action for health and safety and a condemnation and it's in the condemnation that uh process that you know you must have direct compensation. The article um, talked about compensation not being required for anticipatory profits. And I think the ongoing profits of a business probably are um, anticipatory. That's on the basis of Andrews versus Allard. And then a case in the Fed circuit involved energy. Um, when you are in business, there's although you have a hope for ongoing profits, you don't necessarily have a right to make a profit, um, at least not in our system, or at least not the way it's supposed to be going, unless you're too big to fail um, and, and have great lobbyists, I suppose. Seth? I, um, I had just about the same to say as Tony, um, but I would, I would say that, you know, throwing a bone at the businesses, the small businesses that were impacted by COVID restrictions was, um, you know, I'm sure it was on the mind of those drafting uh, in the PPP, but uh, in the end, it probably just came down to like systemic necessity or whatever you want to call it. You know, business, small businesses started to fail in mass that the nation would take even longer to recover. And, and even after that, you know, the macroeconomic landscape would look um, entirely different and our entire financial system probably would look different without any sort of small businesses uh, in the mix. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with Tony when he was saying that, you know, the rollout was just awful. Um, and I also think that 
um, there were just so many people who were left out who actually didn't get uh, any type of compensation. Um, and a lot of people who did get compensation who shouldn't have, uh, there was really no type of oversight because I think that the government had good intentions in mind with trying to help people, but uh, because it was like rolled out so hastily, um, I don't know that it was like very well thought out. So um, I have a couple friends who are small business owners who weren't able to participate and, uh, you know, they were really struggling and some of them had to shut down their business and, um, you know, they're still trying to put the pieces of their life together. Um, and so hopefully, uh, you know, they're able to reopen their businesses at some point. Um, and so Seth, this question, oh, sorry, go ahead, Tony. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I do think it's worth realizing that because um, Seth brought up the microeconomic kind of fabric of, of the country, not everybody lost money in the pandemic. Um, the on-demand delivery drivers or delivery services like DoorDash and um, I'm trying to think of another one, but uh, you know, Amazon made tons of money during the pandemic. But this was a case where the people working for them explicitly didn't, right? The DoorDash driver did not make enough money, did not make more money than previously. They, they're they still scraping by barely making enough money to, to get by eating their car, essentially. Um, and the restaurants being served by those companies or whose, whose food that those companies are delivering have not substantially benefited from those because they're getting hit with fees by the delivery companies that cut into their already fairly thin profits because they're small business restaurants that don't have strong profit margins. So some of that change to the fabric of our, the way that wealth is distributed in this country, you know, is, is exasperated by the pandemic because we're having large tech companies essentially extract value from the mass of, of small businesses um, and, and, and the people. Um, I don't like that. Um, but I don't know that um, I, I'm not sure exactly where I was going with that, but I think that like the, the concept that the, the macroeconomic change um, that there could be a, a change to the way that the fabric of our economy um, operates, you know, could, could actually be a very pressing one. And, you know, in, in some ways, right. It's, it's also good that we do have those large companies that can incur those costs and kind of step in when the small businesses aren't able to actually um, kind of meet the demand in, in times like this. But then again, the issue comes back to what happens after the fact. I mean, does that wealth come back down and and it goes back to business to normal? No, I mean, it's not going to um, probably, I mean, at least not to the fullest extent that it was. And it, even then it wasn't, uh, it, was, it was shifting upward toward the tech companies like you talked about. So um, I, like, like what you said, I think it exacerbated the problem and, and I think going forward, hopefully with, you know, all these things with the infrastructure spending kind of talks coming up and all these things that we'll be able to kind of push money downward again um, toward the communities and the small businesses. But, um, you know, COVID, COVID was a, a, a double-edged sword in that regard. You know, it, it, it brought up the need to have these discussions, I think, um, more so than, than we needed to have them before the pandemic. But um, it, you know, it also led to, uh, you know, the issue that requires that we have the discussion. So we'll see, we'll see how it works out, I think, coming up. 
think those are very good points. I think that especially, you know, with COVID, it was a very big problem and needs a big solution. So we'll just have to see like what happens. Um, it, it's always interesting to me to think about how how well the economy was doing prior to COVID. Um, as for, And, you know, like jobs uh, were, you know, very... Uh, the amount of jobs that people were looking for, it, the, the economy was doing good in that aspect. And now uh, I know several people who are out of work who just can't find anything. Um, but they seem to be doing okay because the government has stepped in to help them. But I'm not exactly sure how much longer that will last. Um, so it'll just be interesting to see how all that plays out. Um, so one of the things in the article, it talks about kind of how um, the prisoners, um, their... Uh, um, uh, their their rights were violated uh, because of COVID. Um, and COVID has ravaged both jails and nursing homes, both populations that can be vulnerable to sickness. Several inmates have filed complaints asserting that their Eighth Amendment rights were violated as a result of jailhouse conditions during the pandemic um, with rising levels of cruel and unusual punishment. Any thoughts on the government, on what the government could have done to mitigate the widespread of COVID in prisons and nursing homes? Uh, how about you, Steph? So uh, among a ton of other things, COVID really highlighted the idea that uh, in many circumstances, there really is no good solution, I think, to, to a lot of issues and everything to extent uh, is a balancing act. And so for the prisons, I mean, when you when we institute a penal system that leads to overcrowding of prisons and and, um, you know, disparities amongst prisoners and what do you do? when you need more space to house prisoners. I mean, you can't really do much. You can theoretically build a new prison, but that would take probably years and, and hundreds of millions of dollars. So you could start potentially releasing nonviolent offenders and put them on parole. And, and we've seen a lot of states do that, especially with uh, you know, pretrial detainees. Um, but you know that, that would have helped the situation, but hindsight is also 2020 and no one really knew how long the pandemic was gonna last. Um, no one really knew how to institute these systems or these you know, procedures very quickly. The nursing home issue is rough too, because I mean, there's probably even fewer actions you could take there than the prison situation because these people are, uh, you know, they don't have anywhere else to go. Um, and, and a lot of them are, you know, infirmed in some way. And so I don't, I don't think anybody knows. And that's why I think the impact of COVID on these populations was as detrimental as it was. Um, but, but it allows for us to have sort of a, a learning experience. We can re-examine those systems and try to shore up the cracks going forward and maybe shift away from uh, you know, a private prison uh, model that creates a profit incentive to overcrowd these places and make it literally impossible to socially distance. We could uh, begin to invest more in at-home nursing care instead of uh, shipping the elderly into nursing homes. And, and that's that was a budding lucrative industry even before the pandemic hit. So maybe maybe these are issues that we should consider going forward with uh, to a greater degree in the future. Thanks, Joanne. What are your thoughts? Yeah, like Seth said there, it's like, it's a really big issue. It's hard to have solid plans when we didn't know how long COVID was going to last. I know when it started, I thought it was three, four months, and then we'd be back to normal. I didn't think that we'd go so long, like here we are a year into um, 
still basically locked down because we still can't do everything normally. But like prisons and jails, how how are we supposed to know how long they'd be stuck in there together? And there's a big problem when there's so many prisoners in the prison that they can't even breathe properly. Uh, but where are we going to put them? That's my question. Where the heck are we going to put them? Because like Seth said, you could go on to build another place, but that's going to take a ton of time and resources and money. And we really didn't have that during COVID. And nursing homes, that's that's on like a person-to-person or household-to-household problem if they can take in another person again in their home if they can care for that person while still trying to care for their family um during covid and so i mean it's still that where are we going to put them what could we have done there wasn't much option if we didn't know how long it was going to take and the you know the massiveness of all the damage that covid has caused tony what are your thoughts i think that seth and joanne are being very kind to some of the people in the trump administration who were making decisions in the early part of the pandemic um obviously nursing homes are not subject to the eighth amendment it's not punishment to put somebody in a nursing home um but the callousness with which medical supplies were diverted by Republican officials during the early part of the pandemic, including things like masks, the pure profit um, grabs where mask supplies were being captured, let at government contract to um, politically connected companies for resale at huge markups on the market. And this was all happening in the first four or five months of the pandemic. Um, That exacerbated the um, impact of the pandemic on these vulnerable populations. The other thing that happened uh, with the jails, particularly there was an increase in the, in compassionate releases, but it was not, a systematic, you know, provision of cash-free bail for nonviolent offenders. If you were black and you were arrested in some states, you were still going to face a thousand or two thousand dollar bail. Where if you were white, you were going to get compassionate release. Um, and those type of systemic problems with our carceral state um, have have been pervasive, and I think the pandemic actually made them more visible if you cared to look. Um, and, and that's not meaning at Joanne or at Seth, but in general, our society, if we wanted to look, all this information's out there, but our society doesn't want to look on a lot of these things. Um, so... I don't know what the nursing homes could have done, but the supplies should have been made available to them earlier and at minimal cost or subsidized cost from the government. So coming through private suppliers and certainly the jails, the nonviolent people, the people who have not been convicted of anything yet. And therefore in under our system are supposed to be presumed innocent. 
if they were being charged with nonviolent crimes, they should have been, you know, released on recognizance until the pandemic passed or until hearings could be arranged and so on. Um, so. Good point. I never even really thought, I forgot about how um, scarce, like, um, um, the PPD was when uh, the pandemic first started. You know, you couldn't really find masks for a normal person and just think about, like, how that wasn't available to hospitals, nursing homes, and things like that. Um, I personally don't know what nursing homes could have done um, just because, not you know, you're dealing with a population that you know, might not even be ambulatory, who can't move, who's bedridden, um, who really depend on people coming in to take care of them. Um, and then if you have like kind of a community outbreak again amongst the staff, like just how that impacts it. Um, as far as the jails, I thought, you know, Tony, you were spot on with that. Like, I, I didn't even think about that, but people, like you're saying, if, if you weren't even at trial yet, you still presume to be innocent, you should be able to let go. But I think that um, there was so much sensationalism again around people, uh, inmates who were freed and then maybe, um, you know, engaged in some type of um, criminal activity or whatever. And they're like, oh no, this is why we should keep them in there. So I'm not sure what they could have done, but um, I thought that that was pretty interesting. Um, and so Joanne, um, wanted to ask this question to you. I know you don't have a job, but I thought maybe that you might be answered, able to answer first. The article talks about essential businesses such as grocery stores and hospitals and how we're, they were able to stay open because they ensure the survival and well-being of the population. But religious institutions like churches and stores that sell firearms and ammunition were not considered essential and forced to close. This created a lot of controversy around the country. Uh, did, the, did the government exercise proper discretion when determining which businesses could operate as an essential business and which ones had to close? So this is a matter of opinion. And in my opinion, absolutely. We don't need malls. We don't need shopping and stuff. It's that's all for like, that's pleasure shopping, but keeping grocery stores open. Obviously we have to have those of religious meetings yeah, you have the right to, um, you know, practice your religion or whatever, but you can practice that online. Who says that you have to meet in close, closed, uh, what's the word? I can't remember, but who says that religious institutes have to be like, in a small space or whatever and you have to be in person just move it online you can still practice like that or i know there was a you can do it but only this min this certain amount of people um which was mentioned in uh the article that you know it was limited to 10 people and people fought against it saying that it was going against their right um, to practice their religion. And I think that's absolute nonsense because while I believe you should be able to practice your religion, have at it, don't endanger others just so that you can meet in person. So I think the government did great on choosing what to shut down um, just because the main things were essential workers, um, essential jobs like grocery stores some like drive throughs or whatever were a huge source of people's food and everything so i mean i understand keeping those 
open, smaller staff, and like masks and everything. That makes sense. But indoor restaurants um, and all those like amenities, basically, they were all shut down. And I absolutely agree with that. Even if it sucked that we couldn't like go shopping or whatever or go to the movies, it was absolutely necessary. Thank you. Um, Tony, what are your thoughts? So these are kind of interesting areas. Um, one of them was that I, I found amazing was that ammunition and firearm sales in some cases got deemed essential after court cases. And that second argument, second amendment argument is absolutely absurd to me. You know, it says keep and bear arms. It says nothing about buying arms. And we have so many arms in this country as it is. <laughs> um, it's hard to imagine somebody who wanted to that didn't already have have a firearm um on the religion one i am much more sympathetic to um the concept that religious services under some condition may have needed to be essential um i generally prefer not to judge other people's religions i know that there's a lot of variation in the way that people worship um Jewish people, for example, have the concept of a minyan, which requires 10 adult um, Jewish members to, to perform some of their ceremonies. Um, so when you stick a number on it, on how many people can congregate, you know, if you are excluding um, certain religions, then that is certainly religious discrimination under the First Amendment if those religions require 12 people or 16 people for, for whatever ceremony or ritual that they're doing. Um, that said, it was important to shut everything down. So it becomes very complicated. Um, I think that by and large, <clears throat> states like Minnesota and I think Pennsylvania did a good job in exercising the discretion. I think there are other states like Wisconsin that um, kind of said, now, just let's just keep doing everything as normal, and that has effects on the rest of the country. Um, I will also say that after the initial shutdowns, when they started opening things back up, we did go to Mall of America one last time before we left Minnesota, and it was eerie. It was like being in a zombie movie. So even if um, things had been opened up, people may not have wanted to go out and congregate anyway. Um, which kind of, you know, that certainly would not have helped the businesses that were open. Seth? I think it's a, an interesting question as well. And I'm going to echo probably a lot of what was already said, but I mean, on one hand, you don't necessarily need to be in a church to practice religion. You can pray in your home. You can watch uh, televised services. Um, same thing with the gun for the most part, absent any um, intensely, immediate threat you don't need a gun or you don't have to run out and grab a gun on a day-to-day -day basis to survive necessarily and so um you know we're, we're sort of weighing this life-sustaining necessity um argument like food and water versus uh sustaining rights and, and sort of upholding a normal society and normal government i guess and both are important, but I mean, biologically speaking, food and water are uh, of the utmost importance, obviously. Uh, you, you probably don't care much about 
you know, upholding your Second Amendment right when you're crawling through the desert uh, searching for water. But, um, but that seems to be the general rationale that the governments took here, the sort of biological argument. Um, I think, though, that these issues may not have been as divisive as they were if we weren't in such a politically charged time. And this is, I think, where I start pulling out that political card that Tony uh, alluded that I was kind of holding back earlier. But um, I mean, if you think about it, COVID hit the U.S. at probably the absolute most inopportune time, uh, if there ever was one. And and I think the backdrop of sort of a uh, a federal government in, um, we'll say, in turmoil, um, really just poured gas on the fire and, and led to a lot of these hotly contested debates that maybe in a different era would not be at least as big of an issue as they were, um, you know, these these last this last two years or whatever, last year or two. Um, so, you know, in an ideal world, no business would have had to close, but the world faced, you know, an unknown, invisible, lethal virus. And so, I mean, we're, we're, you know, you have to choose at some point, something has to give and, and you have to sustain life before you sustain, um, you know, your right to, to travel a couple of miles to go to church on a Sunday or something. But, um, yeah, it was. I I think the whole issue was just uh, a failure of uh, of the federal government to to really assert uh, to assert their authority and to take uh, to take authority over the situation. They kind of kicked it off to the states, which led to uh, an insane mess of different policies for uh, you know addressing an issue that was inherently an international issue. So you needed to have some sort of at least national. Uh, level of authority and and it didn't happen and um hundreds of thousands died because of it yeah this was not the ideal uh time to use federalism in the laboratory of the states the laboratory became petri dishes of the states great point yeah i, I was i was yeah the federal and then and then at the end so so they the federal government kicked it down to the states and then the states did whatever they could. They, they created their own regional compacts and all kinds of things. And then at the end, when the states actually started to get under control, the federal government stepped in and said, well, now we control it. Since you guys all got under control, now we're going to declare when we can open up, when we can't open up. It, you know, I don't know. The, the, uh, the responsibility uh, over the situation was, was um, from the federal government perspective, was abysmal. Um, I do see how people would uh, lean on religious institutions to kind of um, need to have that type of normalcy in their life, especially someone who might live like a lonely life or someone who, you know, and not necessarily a church, but someone who might be uh, suffering with some type of addiction and depend on going to various types of meetings that keep them on the straight and narrow and then uh, kind of being shut up at home and not really having a, a human connection. Um I think that, um, you know, you try to do as much as you can over phone and on Zoom, but there really is nothing like, you know, being face to face with someone. So, you know, while I think that, you know, the government did, you know, what they had to do, I do sympathize with people who, um, you know, kind of were just shut in at home alone. 
Um, as far as ammunition goes, I mean, I'm I'm definitely not a Second Amendment right person at all. But um, I think that with everything that happened over the summer as a result of people being home, um, you know, when we saw like a lot of um, civil rights movement have been happening in cities like with Black Lives Matter and things like that, I could see how people would get a, a, afraid and upset. Um, and we're also talking about it was an election year. So, um, and I think that that is, is kind of like the perfect storm of people wanting to kind of stockpile um, ammunition and things like that. Uh, again, totally uh, don't agree with that, but I can definitely see their perspective. Um, I, I, all I can say is I can just see their perspective, whether or not I think it's right or wrong, or if the government was right or wrong with you know what was closed and what was open, I really don't know. Uh, okay, so the last question is, um, our school has gathered some of our health information, um, and I do believe that we had to sign a release form that the school that would allow the school to share the results of our COVID tests with third parties. Uh, Tony, I remember you talking about this specifically um, at the beginning of the semester. Uh, now that we're learning more about the Constitution, it sounds like this might be a Fourth Amendment violation, as mentioned in the article, that protects citizens against unreasonable searches. So my question is, should we join a class action law school against the school and file a complaint? I'm saying this with a smile on my face in case anyone is wondering. Tony, we'll go with you first. So to be clear, um, I actually have a lot of faith in the administration and faculty at Dickinson Law. Um, the directive where you were mandated to share the results of your COVID tests uh, with the school who then had permission, had mandated permission to share the results of those tests with third parties who were um, including landlords, but also unspecified third parties came from Penn State, the university. Um, and I don't have the same confidence in, in that administration that I do in the Dickinson Law um, administration. I think that consent was invalid because it was coerced. There was no option at all um, to opt out of it. The only thing you could do is withdraw from school. I also think it was a contract of adhesion. It was a form contract that was presented where um, the school had a massive power imbalance against us. Um, I'm a first year law student. My opinion on the legal matters do, do not matter. Um, you know, they, they are not definitive in terms of what uh, what the actualities of the situation would be. And I don't think that um, filing a lawsuit would do much. Seth, I know that you worked on a, in a tech project um, that involved the value of user data and the user data, individual user data was not worth very much at all, um, if I remember uh, when we were chatting. So the damages would probably be pretty low unless the school had released the data to a landlord and then somebody got evicted on pretext and that would get incredibly hard to um, hard to prove those damages. But I, uh, I don't think it was right. Um, I think that there was a lot that was done to students, college students, undergraduate students who were kept in COVID dormitories um, under kind of grotesque conditions that <clears throat> were wrong. Um, that were the result of power imbalances between the school and the students. Um, and there probably is no meaningful mechanism of re redress on them. 
Great. I really love how you tied it back to what we're learning this semester. So snaps for that. All right, Seth, how about you? You ready to join my class action lawsuit? I don't know. I mean, I I think I think uh, privacy laws going forward over the next 50, 100 years are going to be uh, significantly diluted. Um, and, you know, I think it's just a, uh, a product of um, the sort of the surveillance economy and, and data um, collection and, and, and um, distribution for economic reasons. And, and I don't, it's, I don't really know where I stand on this one. I didn't have an answer drafted, but um, I, I, I didn't have an issue signing that waiver. You know, um, I guess, I, you know, I don't know. I don't have a lot to lose. I guess so. It's kind of, it is what it is. But I don't know. What about you, Joanne? I don't really have much to say on this, just because I didn't have to sign any waivers because our school has done nothing to make sure that students are actually um, like healthy and stuff. I'm gonna criticize our school system here because all we have to do, we, we wear masks, right? They don't even really pay attention to all the students. I see so many students wearing them below their nose or whatever, pulling them off so often. Kids are walking extremely close. I've seen kids kissing at my school, hugging. It's disgusting. And like, not in the sense that like kissing or like hugging is disgusting because that's going to happen in a high school. But during COVID and the teachers are just letting it happen. And all we have to do to get into the school is they scan our temperature. But I find it odd that nobody ever has a fever on any given day of any school year, there's gonna be a couple kids with a fever. It's very, very odd that nobody ever has a fever. And they scan once with their little bleep, bleep, bleep thingies, not even straight to the forehead sometimes. Like they shot at my temple today and I'm like, uh, what? And I think that's ridiculous, um, but we don't have to sign anything. We, we don't have to really, we're not that important. Our safety isn't that important, whatever, whatever, shoo, shoo. Um, so I, and I also can't really join you in a class action lawsuit or anything. I, I'm still, I'm still a minor also, oh. so sorry. I'm not going to file a class law action lawsuit anyway. I mean, I, honestly, I was happy to sign the paperwork because um, I figured that was uh, what I would normally call like the cost of doing business. So if that's what I had to do in order to go to law school and have classes, um, if we needed to kind of um, adhere to social distancing policies or whatever, I was more than happy to do that um, so that we could have class, even though it was hybrid. Um, I felt like it wasn't too onerous and I was happy to do it. So. Thanks, everyone. Okay. And with that, we're about out of time. Uh, thanks again to our panel, uh, Shenway, Seth, 
and Joanne. Reminder, you can find a link to the article discussed by going to lawreviewsquared.com and looking at the episode notes. Let us know what topics you'd like us to consider by Twittering suggestions to at Squared Law. Please like, follow, subscribe, or give us a rating wherever you find this podcast. If you're a law student at any school and would like to be on the panel, feel free to get in touch. Audio post-processing by Mohamed Salim. Podcast adjourned.